This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Let's begin with a word of prayer before we go look at the scriptures this morning. Father, we're thankful for what you have revealed to us in the scriptures. Proverbs says twice that there is a path, there is a road, there is a way that seems right to us, but the end thereof is death. The implications of that verse are profound as we think about it, that there are many things that seem to us to be common sense, but yet the values within that common sense are informed by the world around us that is divorced itself from the truth of your word. Your word sets itself over against all of the thinking of man that is set in rebellion against you. All of the ideas, values, priorities that the world thinks are significant pale compared to the priorities, the values, the frame of reference that you've given us in your word. And it is only through your word that we come to know things as you have created them. And things are the way they are because you created them. And therefore, you and you alone have any right to speak to these things. And it is only as we listen to you that we can live in harmony with that which you have created and that we can truly begin to experience the uh, blessings that you have provided for us in our salvation. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would drive home the principles that we study, that we might recognize that this is not simply abstract theology or doctrine, but that it truly changes the way we think about life. It changes our mental attitude. It changes how we relate to the circumstances that we face on a day-to-day basis and how this undergirds uh, our very souls with a real and genuine concept of hope. Now, Father, we pray that you guide and direct our thinking this morning. Help us to focus upon you and your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, where Paul, in discussing the sufficiency of Christ, shifts to a new aspect, and that is something that Christ accomplished on the cross, and that is the doctrine of reconciliation. And as we'll see today, as we go into Ephesians chapter 2, come to understand that reconciliation involves the removal of a barrier that was erected between man and God when Adam first sinned. A number of years ago, I remember, I remember uh, laughing, chuckling somewhat when I heard a professor of mine in seminary alluded to the fact that it had been, uh, he couldn't remember how long it had been since he'd been in church and had heard a, a doctrinal sermon. And what he was referring to at the time was simply a message on any of the great doctrines related to salvation, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation. Because so often what we have today in so many churches is people coming with various itches they want to have scratched from the pulpit. They want to be entertained. They want to be uplifted. They want to be motivated. They want to feel good about themselves and everything else. But they don't want to think about reality. But yet the Bible is a book that forces us to think about reality But to understand reality as God defined it, and only when we think about reality as God defined it can we understand that there are certainly uh, flaws and failures within the reality of human creation. 
Uh, we understand that we live in a fallen world, a world that is under judgment. We understand that as, as uh, Christians, that uh, as human beings, we are also fallen, and as human beings, we are under condemnation. We don't live in a world that is what it should be or what God intent, originally intended it to be, and we don't live with people who are what God originally intended them to be. And greatest of all, we're not what God originally intended us to be. We've all been tainted by sin. And as a result of sin and living in a fallen world, the world is in a position, the Scripture says, of hostility or enmity with God. And it is because the fact that the world has, because of Adam's sin, has put itself in a, this position of hostility to God that everything that we experience has been corrupted by sin. Nothing is what we want it to be, or what we think it should be. And we're faced with all manner of problems. We're faced with economic problems, and every day on the news we hear more news about you know, economic problems and the crises facing not only our nation because of years and years of uh, failures in terms of responsible use of uh, taxpayer dollars, but this affects the entire world because so often all these other nations have been doing the same thing that we've been doing following our leadership and operating on various uh, irresponsible principles of uh, putting off until tomorrow or the next day what you can uh, instead of dealing with responsible things today, just just letting the next generation handle handle debt, not being responsible and paying for and only accomplishing or only uh, only attempting to pay for what you can actually afford. And so, as a result, we have these crises. We have crises in uh, in terms of wars and terrorism that go throughout the world. There's just a lack of harmony. Now, you find a lot of people who are not Christians who try to find harmony and peace in a lot of different ways, and the word peace becomes a watchword for uh, generations, not just the generations, recent generations in the United States, but throughout the centuries, that there is a cry for peace, and in the prophets of the Old Testament, there is a recognition that people cry for peace, peace when there is no peace. The basic issue of peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which has to do with wholeness or health or peace. It can be applied in a couple of different directions. And peace, both experientially on a horizontal basis in terms of peace in society, peace in culture, peace in the world, but also peace with God was broken when Adam sinned. Because harmony with God was broken, it had a, a, a an effect on our peace with other human beings. And so to solve all any and all human problems, first of all, there must be a resolution of this alienation, this hostility, as the Scripture speaks, this enmity that exists in the relationship of human beings to God. And only God can affect that peace, can affect that reconciliation. And those are the two key words that we find in the Scriptures. Now, last time, just to give you a brief review, we began to focus on this in our look on Colossians 1, 20, and 21. There, Paul writes, "...by him, that is, by Christ, to reconcile all things to himself." And I pointed out in the context of, of Colossians chapter 1 that the all things relates to everything in creation. Go back to verse 16 and verse 17, where we have a number of references to all things, that by him all things were created. That refers to everything within creation, uh, everything in heaven and earth. Nothing is left out by that phrase. And so here, all things that God the Father by Christ was to reconcile all things to himself, whether things in the earth or things in heaven, because he had made peace through the blood of the cross. Now, that phrase, the blood of the cross, has to do with just simply an expression of the death of Christ on the cross, what transpired between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when darkness was on Golgotha, darkness was on the earth, as God the Father imputed the sins of the world to Jesus Christ. The, what we see in the Scriptures is the Scripture defines the basic problem 
in human history is sin. The world says the basic problem is any number of things. It's a lack of leadership. It's a lack of integrity. It's a uh, lack of education. It's a lack of equality. All kinds of things are suggested as the problem. But the basic assumption of the world is that man is basically good. He may do bad things, but he's basically okay. And you can think back to the 80s uh, philosophy, philosophy of I'm okay, you're okay. But the Bible says that I'm not okay, neither are you. And that is one of the foundational truths of the Scripture that separates biblical Christianity from all other forms of religion. It is a recognition that man is basically flawed and corrupt because of sin. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's as bad as they could be, that people don't do relatively good things, but it means that your starting point, you have to understand that man is a flawed, failed creature and that the only solution to correct that problem comes from God. And so that's what begins at the cross. And it is that transaction that occurs at the cross that begins to solve the problem. And it's stated here as re- dealing with reconciliation. It is through Christ as we have seen, the word that is used for reconciliation is a distinct word. Uh, the primary word used for reconciliation is the last part of this word, katalaso. But when the prefix, the prepositional prefix is added, apa, it has the intensification. It means to reconcile completely. Only God can reconcile completely. But we have to understand what that means. The word is used in a passage we'll go to in a minute, which is Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 17, and there Paul uses the same word again, that he might reconcile them both, that referring to Gentiles and Jews, to God, in one body through the cross. So again, it is what happens at the cross that changes everything in creation. In the same way that when Adam sinned, now we don't normally think about it this way. What do you think of when you think that Adam disobeyed God? Who did that affect? Well, it messed up Adam and Eve right there on the spot. We usually don't go much further than that to recognize that this reverberated through all of the universe. It had not only spiritual consequences, it had physical consequences. In Romans 8, 20 and following, Paul talks about the fact that the creation groans under the curse. It affected physical things so that physical laws, laws of physics... Laws of biology were changed. There's this reverberation, this chaos that comes into physical creation as well as our spiritual relationship with God. And so there has to be this full reconciliation. Just as Adam's sin affects everything, spiritual, immaterial, physical, so what Jesus Christ did, what Jesus Christ did on the cross also had not only spiritual, a spiritual effect, but it had a physical effect. That all things in Colossians 1.20 relates not only to the spiritual, but the physical in context. He created all things. That's everything physical. So we have to work out these implications. And he did this by making peace through the blood of the cross. Now, Non-Christians sometimes ridicule this whole idea of substitutionary atonement, the idea that there needed to be a sacrifice. And yet at the very core of our whole understanding of law is an understanding that legal penalties must be paid. And what's interesting as we work through these chapters, uh, these verses that deal with reconciliation, I want you to notice that there's, a, there's an analogy or correlation between what these verses talk about in terms of making peace with God and destroying the uh, wall of separation between God and man and concepts that are at the very core of our thinking about civilization and society. And the idea here of... of, of A sacrifice is the idea that a legal penalty has to be paid. Now, when you reject that idea, it should have consequences on how you view law. 
And indeed, if we look at what's happened in Western civilization, the idea of an objective legal standard that all human beings are accountable to, if not now, then in the future, at some future judgment, that idea has been removed from the thought of Western civilization, and it has led to moral relativism and on the basis of the rise of evolutionary thought based on Darwin in the mid-19th century and the implications of that on law, which occurred uh, with the rise of positivist legal theory in the uh, late 19th and 20th century, which uh, really brought about a direct attack on the uh, way in which the uh, Constitution and constitutional law was, was interpreted, it has led to what? A, a society now where we have less poverty, a society now where we have less criminality, a society now where we have uh, less international conflict. It's none of that. The more we have become immersed in the secular humanism and the moral relativism that grew out of the uh, heresies uh, in the mid-19th century, by that I refer to Darwinism, uh, Freudianism, uh, refer to all of the views on moral relativism. The more we get immersed in all of that, the more we've experienced the just disruption and the chaos of, of modern society. There's no real hope there. So the only hope is in Christ. He is the one who's made peace. So I defined for us last time the concept of reconciliation. First and foremost, the work, reconciliation is the work of God for man. There's two aspects to reconciliation, but the primary one, the significant one that we want to focus on is that which God does. It is an absolute in terms of its reference to every human being. It's the work of God for man in which God undertakes to transform man's position of hostility to peace. He's changing our position from hostility to peace in order to make possible an actual eternal fellowship with a righteous and just God. A righteous God cannot have fellowship with an unrighteous creature. That position of the creature of unrighteousness must be changed so that the righteous God can have fellowship with the creature. And so this is accomplished two ways. Objectively, it's accomplished at the cross. I use the word forensically here. That's because the cross is a legal action whereby a legal penalty assigned from the Supreme Court of Heaven, that is death, is born, that penalty is born by Jesus Christ on the cross. He bears that penalty, that penalty of spiritual death, and it is a legal or forensic action that is accomplished once and for all by Jesus Christ on the cross. He has reconciled all things. Does that mean that everything is now saved? No. It means that that legal problem of hostility has been removed, but it hasn't been personally applied yet. That can only come individually through faith in Christ. So reconciliation was accomplished forensically in a legal sense once and for all by Christ on the cross, and it applies then subjectively or to the individual when each person trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, we see this in a great passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2. As I've pointed out several times, there are a lot of similarities and parallels between uh, Ephesians and Colossians. They were written very close together, and so there's a lot of parallels and similarities. So I want you to turn with me to, to Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to pick up the context a little bit because the, the section from uh, verse 11 down through 17 is one of the most significant chapters for understanding understanding reconciliation. At the beginning of this, we understand that man is in a position that keeps him from having a relationship with God. Verse 1 says, you, and it should be translated with a, uh, con- as a consensu- concessive clause because it's not an, uh, an independent clause in verse 1. It's dependent upon verse Verse 4, the main idea here is but God. That's the subject of this long sentence from verse 1 down through verse 7. 
in the Greek is one sentence. The subject, grammatical subject of the sentence is God, and there are there are um, three verbs. God in, is the subject in verse four, but the three verbs are found in compound verbs are found in verse five and six. God made us alive together with Christ, raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places. That's what Paul is talking about. It's what God did for us. He, first of all, he solved the problem of spiritual death in, the, in that he made us alive together with Christ. We move from a position of spiritual death to spiritual life. He raised us up together. That's elevation in terms of our relationship with Christ, placing us in Christ, and he makes us present tense concepts sit together in the heavenly places. That's our identification, our position in Christ. But before he can even state what God has done for us, he wants us to really understand that there's a problem. And the problem is that we're spiritually, we're spiritually dead. Verse 1, you he made alive. And that should be a concessive. He made alive isn't there. The emphasis he begins with is, though you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's how we're born, is spiritually dead. As a result of that, we had a lifestyle. We walked according to the course of this world, the thinking of this world, the values, the priorities, the ethics of the world. And this is according to the prince of the power of the air, another term for Satan who is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, and among whom, Paul says, also we all once. Now, when he uses the word we, he's talking about Gentiles and Jews. So it means all the human race. We all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's the profound statement. We are all by nature children of wrath. That is, that means that we are all by nature under God's judgment because we are all under condemnation because of sin. But it doesn't stop there. But God who is rich in mercy, when he shifts to talk about God, he says, first of all, but God, but then he has to define who God is. He's rich in mercy. And because of the great love with which he loved us, this is the foundation, this is what is the, that which moves his action even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Now, the basis for this transformation is then given in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not on the basis of something we do. It's not on the basis of how we're born, some sort of ethnic background. It's not on the basis of ritual. It is on the basis of God's grace. And it is through faith. It becomes ours through the process of believing in Christ. So Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, the that not of yourself, some people try to make that mean faith isn't of yourself. It's a gift, but that's not uh, grammatically accurate because the word faith there is a feminine, and that is a neuter, and a neuter uh, relative pronoun does not refer to a feminine uh, noun. It has to refer to a neuter. But there's no neuter. Grace is not neuter. It's also feminine. It, and so in, in, in uh, Greek, when a, you have a, a compound subject, it's usually referred to with a neuter pronoun. So it's the whole concept of by grace you have been saved through faith. That whole concept is not of yourselves. In other words, the salvation is not something we produce. It is what God performed. We believe God performs the entire work of salvation, but we access it through faith. It is a gift, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But it has a purpose. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, the we there refers to not only Jew, but also Gentile, and that really is what comes out in the next section. So verses 1 through 10 establishes the foundation of our salvation by grace through faith. And from that, Paul is going to show now that 
uh, some greater dimensions of that salvation, especially in terms of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, but not unsaved Jews and Gentiles, but Jews and Gentiles in Christ. Because we, you have to understand that in verses 11 through, 9, through 18, the primary focus here is on the fact that there has existed since the Mosaic Law a hostility between Jews and Gentiles. God, from the time he called out Abraham, set apart the Jewish people and gave them a position of privilege in light of the covenants that God gave, in light of the scriptural revelation that he gave, in light of the promises that God gave to the Jewish people. And this distinguishes them by their privilege from the rest of humanity, from the Gentiles. It means that the Jewish people were given certain privileges based on knowledge and information. They knew more about God. They knew about God's plan. They knew there was a promise of a Messiah. That information was not given to the Gentiles. They're in a position of privilege in that God has communicated to them things he did not communicate to the entire human race. What he communicated to the Jewish people was for the entire human race, but he does not have a covenant relationship with anyone but the Jewish people. That does not make them justified automatically. It doesn't make them saved automatically. It just means that they had more information than everybody else, so that put them in a place of privilege in terms of what they knew. But it doesn't make them any more saved or justified than anyone else. So the primary focus here that Paul is bringing out is that now that we are in Christ, there is no longer this lack of peace or division or barrier, he'll bring up that idea, between the Jewish believers and Gentile believers. We need to understand from this context what that barrier consists when it speaks of the relationship between Jews in Christ and Gentiles in Christ. But then it goes to, he takes it to another level of application, which is really secondary to what he is saying in this passage, but is the foundation of the removal of the barrier between Jew and Gentile, and that is ultimately the removal of the barrier between man and God, which is the foundation for understanding uh, reconciliation. So let's begin by looking at verse 11. Therefore, he says, remember that you... See, before we were talking about we. We were created for good works that God ordained that we should walk in them. So when you look at verse 10, note the we. We are his workmanship, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But now in verse 11, he talks about you. There's a shift in pronoun that's very important. Therefore, he says, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh. And the idea there is the idea of formerly, you formerly Gentiles in the flesh. Now, what does that mean in the flesh? Well, he uses the same term in relationship to describing the Jews as uh, those who are called circumcision, uh, called circumcision in the flesh. And what he's talking about is just in terms of who they are in terms of their ethnic, physical, ethnic background. So he says, first of all, remember something. So he's going to focus on the way things were prior to their trusting in Christ as Savior. He says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh... See, we learn from studying Scripture that once we're saved... These ethnic distinctions are no longer relevant in the church age in the body of Christ. It doesn't mean that there aren't actual ethnic distinctions, that somebody's not Jewish, somebody's not a Gentile. It means that as opposed to the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law, those ethnic distinctions are no longer significant in terms of our personal spiritual life. Remember in the Old Testament, if under the Mosaic Law, that only someone who was Jewish could enter into the uh, in, into the inner courtyard of the temple to worship. Only male Jews could enter in there. Not, women could not enter in there, and Gentiles could not enter in there. You go to the second temple, uh, charts we've looked at in the past, 
you had the outer courtyard of the Gentiles, the interior court of the women, and then you had the interior part of the temple. So there was that distinction that was made in the Mosaic law. There were distinctions as to who could and could not come into the presence of God. Now that Christ has died for our sins, those distinctions are no longer relevant in terms of our personal, individual, spiritual life. Men are still men. Women are still women. There are distinctions that apply to, in some ways, to the role of men and the role of women, but not in terms of their personal relationship to God. They have equal access to God. There are role distinctions, but they have equal access to God. Paul also says in those passages that there's neither slave nor free. doesn't mean that the slaves were freed because they trusted in Christ, but that slavery was and, and a man's economic status, whether he was slave or free, is not determinative in terms of his relationship to God anymore. In the Old Testament, slaves could not go into the temple. They were kept out. But now... Every believer in Christ has equal access to God. But actually, experientially, if a person was a slave, they remained a slave. Paul has certain mandates for slaves, that they were to continue to be obedient to their masters. So, But in terms of their relationship to God, they have a direct relationship to God. So we have to understand that, that distinction. So... In the Old Testament, there's clearly a distinction between Gentiles and Jews. So Paul says here, Remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision. Now, this is an interesting word here that's used, and we're looking at the doctrine of circumcision on Thursday night in Romans, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But the word here for circumcision in the Greek does not have an article with it. The lack of an article in the Greek doesn't make it indefinite like it does in English, but it often indicates something, something's quality. And in this case, the, the Jews referred to Gentiles as uncircumcised. If you remember the story of David and Goliath, when David came from his father's house to bring food to his brothers who were on the battle line, against the Philistines, and he heard uh, Goliath come out into the uh, Valley of Elah there and uh, utter his challenge against the uh, Jews that if they would uh, wanted to fight, to send down a champion. And David's response was what? Why are you letting this, this uncircumcised Philistine come out? He immediately cast the battle in terms of spiritual dimensions and said the issue here has to do with our privilege and position in terms of the Abrahamic covenant, and the Abrahamic covenant gave us this land, and this uncircumcised Philistine has no relationship to God's promise of the land, so what's the problem? Why aren't we defeating him? He, they understood that, that that circumcision, uncircumcision, made a distinction in terms of their relationship to God. But by this time, out of arrogance... Uh, the Jewish people, especially under Pharisaism, would just haughtily and arrogantly refer to Gentiles as uncircumcised. No article. It's a The quality here isn't a positive quality. It's a negative quality. It's an insult. It's a term of derision. And so uh, Paul is saying, you were called, you Gentiles were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Now there is an article there because there's a point of using it to identify uh, the arrogance that came out of the Jewish thought here, that they are, were special in God's, in their relationship to God. They were the circumcision. But then Paul says, uses this phrase, it's made, in, made by hands. And the Greek word there, keropoietas, means, means to something that is made by human effort, and it is always used to depict human works as opposed to God's work, everywhere that it's used. So he's making a point here that this circumcision is just their own work that they think somehow gets them privilege with God, and it was not. He goes on in verse 12 to say that at that time, that is formerly, they were without Christ, now, he's going to identify five things here that 
were distinct between Gentiles and Jews. At that time, they were, first of all, without Christ. That meant that they did not have information about the Messiah. In the Old Testament, it's referring back to the Old Testament period, the period before Jesus came, so he's not talking about Jesus in terms of salvation. He's talk, it's more the concept of the Messiah, that Gentiles had no promise of the Messiah. They had no knowledge of the Messiah. They had no national hope of a Messiah. But Israel had this messianic hope. Passages that we've studied in the past, such as Genesis 49.10, that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Deuteronomy 18.15, which we studied just this last uh, Tuesday night in our study of Acts, that there would be a prophet like Moses who would come. This was understood as a messianic promise that the Messiah would be a unique prophet as Moses was. Passages like Psalm 2 talking about how the nations, uh, the Gentile nations in the end times would revolt against God and his Messiah, his anointed. Passages like Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 and Micah 5, 2 are all passages that reinforce the national hope of Messiah. The second thing that we see here is the fact that at that former time, they were not only had no concept of a Messiah or a messianic hope, but second, they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, this word alien is a word that is not politically correct today. This is a side point. Earlier, I'm pointing out that there are certain implications of things that are said in the Scriptures that apply to a lot of different areas that we have in life. For example, Scripture talks about law, but when the concept of law in modern Western civilization is perverted to be the relative, a relativistic con- concept that just reflects the uh, values of the people at a certain time in history, then we lose the concept of law. Once we lose the concept of law, you can't really talk and communicate the gospel anymore because you've lost a concept of absolutes. And if you can't think in terms of absolute, uh, an absolute uh, disobedience to God resulting in an absolute penalty, it makes it very difficult to communicate the gospel to people. You have to start at basics to help them understand uh, that law is something different from just a relativistic reflection of majority opinion at a particular moment in time. But here we're introduced to another concept that is fundamental to understanding the dynamics of the cross. And this is the idea of illegal immigration. This is the idea of of citizenship within a nation that means something, that brings privilege to a specific group of people and excludes another group of people. And in our modern world today, we think that is somehow wrong, that we sh- you've got groups out there, nations without borders. Okay, if you buy into all of that, you buy into the fact that, well, we really shouldn't have borders, that people should be able to flow back and forth between nations to be... Uh, you know, to provide agricultural workers and farmer, farm workers and whatever, then when you buy into that as a real true concept, then the whole, the whole structure undergirding the Scripture's explanation of reconciliation is attacked. So if you don't hold to a concept that a nation has the right to set borders and to exclude certain people from the privileges of citizenship and others to have citizenship, then you're attacking the foundation of how the Bible explains reconciliation. Because Paul's whole explanation here of reconciliation is going to be built on this understanding of being an alien and a non-citizen in a country. And the language that he uses is a language that affirms the right of a nation to establish the requirements for citizenship and what non-citizens are not allowed to do. Now, here are the two words that are used here to describe this second problem that existed between Gentiles and Jews. Gentiles were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. This word for aliens is a perfect participle, which indicates a 
past action that has ongoing results, a completed past action that has ongoing results, from the Greek word op alatriao, and it means to simply to be excluded or alienated from something. Now, we used to refer to those who entered into a country and were immigrants, legal or illegal, as aliens. They weren't citizens. They were aliens, and or they were another way in which this word is translated is they were strangers. I always thought it was interesting how the French refer to non-French citizens as étrangers. They're strangers. So if you go over to France, you're a stranger. Well, that's the idea here. That's what alien means. It means somebody who's a stranger, somebody who is not part of the body politic of that nation or a citizen. This is the second word that is the word that's translated commonwealth should be referred to as citizenship in Israel. It's the Greek word politeia. And it refers to the, in Greek language, it refers to the residents of the city that participated in all the rights and privileges of a citizen of that particular polis or city. Polis is where we get our term politics. So we have the word politeia here, which refers to the rights of a citizen. Now, you go all the way back into the Old Testament, and you discover that there were uh, legal mandates in the Mosaic Law for how to treat strangers or aliens who came, Gentiles who came into Israel, that they had limited uh, privileges. And the idea of, uh, of a someone who was uh, excluded or alienated was that what the privileges that a non-citizen had in a country was defined by law and defined by treaty. So that if you were a Jew and you were living uh, in Israel, you were you were fully you fully participated in every aspect of, of Jewish culture and Jewish law. But if you were a Moabite like Ruth in the Old Testament, you were a stranger. You were a Moabitess. She was a Moabitess, and so uh, but she decides to to become. A, a Jew. She identifies with the family that she married into, and so she uh, moves from being a a Gentile Moabitess to becoming part of the Jewish community. But there were regulations within the law for defining that. Now, if you wipe all that out, which is what the anti-immigrant, I mean, which is what the uh, um, you know, the pro-immigration movement today wants to do is just uh, you know, automatically legalize people who violated the law to come in. And they, they act as if, you know, we really shouldn't have laws like this. So the whole assumption of this view that we should not exercise privilege and rights as to who should live and operate in this country and who should not, uh, which they reject, if you, if you assume they're right, then you have taken a position by implication that contradicts what the Scripture says about reconciliation and the whole understanding of citizenship. And Paul uses that as a legitimate basis for understanding reconciliation. So Gentiles were aliens. They were non-citizens from the commonwealth of Israel. And then he says they were strangers from the covenants of promise. Now, the covenants of promise in the Old Testament basically relates to the unconditional covenants. The Mosaic law was never considered a covenant of promise. Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of promise because it promised the Israelites three things. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were promised land. They were promised a seed, and they were promised that through that seed all nations would be blessed. Three aspects. They're expanded in three subsequent covenants. The land covenant in Deuteronomy 28.1, which is indicated there is another covenant that was promised to Moses. This promised the land to Israel uh, in relation to his promise as stated in Genesis 12.7. You have the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7.14 and following, which relates to the promise to David that through his seed, that there would be an eternal dynasty, an eternal kingdom set up in Israel. And then third, the eternal blessing, which was expanded in Jeremiah 31:33, the new covenant that it was established by Christ on the cross. 
So Gentiles were not part of that covenant process. The covenant was a legal contract made between God and Israel, and the Gentiles are secondary beneficiaries, but they're not covenant uh, members in the sense that Israel is. And then last, they have no hope, and they are without God in the world. So the Gentiles had no hope because they weren't a covenant partner, and they were without God, atheists. atheists. They were without God in the world. But there's a contrast. But now in Christ Jesus, see, he's talking about now in Christ. He's not talking about Gentiles outside of Christ. He's not talking about Jews outside of Christ. He's talking about what we have in Christ. But now in Christ, you who once were far off, the Gentiles were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, near to God. You could picture it this way. If you have God at the top, you have a horizontal barrier between God and man. And then a little further down, you have a vertical barrier that separates Gentiles and Jews. Jews, because they had a promise of a Messiah, they had the scriptures, they had the covenants, they had hope. They're a little, they're closer to God because of their position of privilege, but there's still a barrier between them and God. They're still sinners under condemnation. Gentiles were further away from God because they didn't have the covenants, they didn't have the scripture, they didn't have the hope of a Messiah, so they're further away. But their Gentiles and Jews are separate, separated. But in, so Paul says, now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near, that's reconciliation applied, by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. It is his work on the cross that provides peace. He himself is our peace who has made both one. What's he talking about here? He's not talking about the relationship to God. He's talking about the horizontal relationship between Jew and Gentile because there was a division, a barrier between them as well. For he is our peace, talking about peace between Jew and Gentile, who has made both, that is Jew and Gentile, one in Christ and broken down the middle wall, which consisted of separation. That's this barrier. Now, what was that barrier? That's defined in verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments. That's what separated Jew and Gentile, was they had the Mosaic law, and at the root of the Mosaic law was, was they had to be circumcised. And they were the circumcised, and the Gentiles were the uncircumcised. Then you have the other 612 commandments, 613 total in the Mosaic Law. And following all of that, separated and distinguished Jews from Gentiles. So there is in the flesh a hostility or enmity or division between Gentile and Jew. So the cross, because we're in Christ, Jew and Gentile, that barrier of the law because the law has been removed, the law is nullified after the cross, means that in Christ there's not a barrier between Jew and Gentile. It is the law that had created that barrier. So he says, having abolished in his flesh, that is Christ's flesh, what happens at the cross, the enmity that is, and it's defined in context, the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. He abolished that for the purpose of creating in himself one new man from the two making peace. So that's his primary point is talking about reconciliation and peace in terms of Jew and Gentile together, one in Christ. But then he moves to another topic in verse 16. He says, and, meaning in addition to removing the barrier between Jew and Gentile, and that he might reconcile them both, both Jew and Gentile, to God. So, now he goes to the foundational doctrine that is that that supports what he, his primary purpose was. Primary purpose was to talk about the fact that Jew and Gentile are now one in Christ, but that's built on the doctrine of reconciliation, and the the purpose here secondary in terms of what Paul's saying in this paragraph, but it's primary in terms of God's work at the cross that He might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity. And so 
There is a grace solution that removes the barrier that's between God and man. Now, it is the removal of that barrier that is what we refer to as reconciliation objectively. God removed the barrier at the cross. And I'll come back and we'll cover that next time. It's, I want to do it in one lesson, and we don't have time to cover the whole barrier uh, in one lesson this morning unless we want to stay until about 1 o'clock. Um, but that's that's what Paul is talking about here it is the removal of that barrier. It's interesting that in the Old Testament we have this word atonement, which was really a made-up English word, at one meant. And it's made up in order to try to... Uh, understand this word kafar that's used in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. You never find the word atonement in the New Testament, not used once. On the other side, you don't find the word reconciliation used in the Old Testament. That's a New Testament word. So atonement has to do with something that's happening in the Old Testament period that anticipates what Christ is going to do on the cross. But once it's accomplished on the cross, there's an objective reality of the removal of enmity between God and man, and that's referred to as reconciliation. And it's understanding both of these terms in, term, in, in the sense and how they represent the totality of what is accomplished on the cross that helps us to understand the peace that we have with God and that as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a real peace that goes beyond any comprehension, any way of ex explaining anything that is ours as a reality in day-to-day -day life, no matter what the external circumstances may be. And we'll come back and break down the barrier uh, next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to take a look at this great doctrine, these great passages that we have in the Scriptures, to understand all that you have done for us was accomplished at the cross. Everything that Jesus did on the cross solved all the problems generated by Adam and his sin. And that the way that is applied to us is simply by trusting in Christ as our Savior. We pray that there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All that is necessary is that you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Nothing that we do gives us any merit before God. The only merit is the work of Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that you would challenge us as we think about the fact that we are reconciled to you, that we have peace with you and the implications of that in every area of our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.